Good morning. Good to be with you guys uh, again this morning. I um, it's it's a little bit of an exciting time for us as a church because you start to see just even this next coming week you start to see stuff happening again and in, in the building. There's uh, um, on. Wednesday, we have uh, the Batavia Youth Baseball is hosting their blood drive here at Chapel Street Church, Mill Creek. And so there's going to be people coming and going as a part of that. I think there's still some spots available. If you'd like to give blood, there is uh, a need right now for that. We have our, our um, drive to collect cleaning supplies for our neighborhood resource fair that we're going to be hosting in June. That people, there's evening hours to deliver that on um, Tuesday and Wednesday from 5 to 7, so people are going to be coming and going for that. We've got Mother's Day service, 10 a.m. outdoors we're excited about. There's going to be baby dedications, and our kindergarten kids are going to receive their Bibles. All these things that we missed out on in the last year are starting to happen. In June, we've got our Mill Creek baptism service here that we are excited about and looking forward to. Um, and so we're grateful for that. And I also, and I don't normally do this, but I wanted just to um, say happy birthday to Katie Tate. Katie, many of you uh, might not know this, but over this last year with COVID um, and kind of disrupting college plans has served as an intern here at the Mill Creek campus. She's worked hard on sermon research and events and all sorts of things. So Thank you for using your gift. She's got such an incredible heart for God's word and for loving people. Um, so happy birthday to you, Katie, and thank you for the many, many ways you have blessed all of us here through your efforts and your work. Um, we're going to continue this morning on our study of 1 Peter. And throughout this letter, one of the themes that we keep coming back to is that Peter is, is helping um, remind us of our need to, to have accurate expectations, as we've talked about it. And, and Peter's talking specifically into situations um, where we're thinking about, or really more so even experiencing the reality of suffering. It's, it's a real thing. Remember, at the very outset, we talked about how Peter sort of normalizes this in, in the life of the follower of Jesus. And so think for a moment about a time when you've seen somebody dealing with something really difficult, really hard in their lives. In fact, I uh, just over the last several weeks, I one of my former students who I had when he was in high school, um, young married couple, uh, living life, doing well, all of a sudden begin to have um, seizures. They discover a brain tumor. He's in the hospital for weeks. There's a, a pretty evasive surgery to remove the tumor, and all along, he and his wife, as they post on Caring Bridge, just keep celebrating the faithfulness of Jesus. And as I was watching this unfold, I, I just was thinking, like, man, what an incredible witness to who God is, to what he does in our lives. And, and yet on the flip side of that, and, may, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we see somebody in the midst of really intense pain, suffering, and we see them respond with calm or faith or even joy. Like, what do we say? It hasn't hit them yet, right? Or maybe they're in shock. Peter, Peter is going to help frame the experience of suffering. If you, we can think about this as our theology of suffering for the church. 
And, and when he does so, he talks about it in terms of blessing, which to us sounds like an oxymoron. Um, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, this is, we've used this as a point of focus throughout this series. It's been a memory verse for us. This is what Peter writes. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so what we wrestle with as followers is, okay, we've got this new birth into a living hope, so then what does that mean for my life? In fact, I, I, my oldest daughter is a math major in college, and, uh, and when she's home, you look at her homework, and it's like, I don't, I don't understand any of this. There's numbers and letters all over the place. And yet, when we think of this as kind of a, in, in the context of like an equation, right? We think, okay, here's the truth. A is new birth into a living hope. And what does that equal in our minds? And so our sense is, is if new birth into a living hope equals whatever our set of expectations are about what it means to follow Jesus, our idea of how life should go as a result of A. But, but Peter is saying that's, it's not our expectations, that's not B. He's saying A equals C, A equals Christ. Our lives should pattern, should mirror the life of Christ. That's what what he wants to teach us. And for us as the church, this is, this is vital. This is so important. The overarching theme of Peter's letter here is critical if we're going to understand and apply what he wants to teach us about, about a holy life. This application only makes sense if, in fact, it's understood through the lens of a new life in Christ. I also think that this is important because I think that in the North American expression of the church, our, our, the way we have experienced the body of Christ together here in this environment, we have, I think, sought to uh, inoculate ourselves a bit from the reality of suffering. I think, I think it's somewhat motivated out of our desire for evangelism. I think it's, it's somewhat motivated from this sense of we really want to be active and compelling and sharing the good news about who Jesus is, this life-giving, sin-liberating relationship with Jesus. And so as a result, perhaps we tend to avoid things that speak to the experience and the reality of suffering out of a fear that it will make the gospel less attractive. But Peter is going to make the exact opposite case. Peter is going to teach us that faithfulness to Christ in the midst of suffering may be the very thing that causes someone to come to you and say, I want to know more about this hope that you have. So let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to pick it up now in... Verse 8, Peter has been laying out his, what we talked about last week, as this plan of submission. Um, is submission as it relates to their response to authorities in their lives who may not share their, their surrendered life to Christ. They may not share that vision of their life, and they may be unjust in, in their application of that. And Peter's plan is that 
we're going to model Christ as, through submission. In fact, Peter sort of flips it on its head so that we understand that submission is not an act of weakness, but rather of strength. It's in the kingdom of God, it's a power move. And so this is where we pick up the conversation now in verse 8. Peter writes this. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he cites an example from the life of David. This is Psalm 34. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So let's, let's pause there for a moment. I don't want to begin. I want us to look at this through what what Peter describes as our high calling. What Peter talks about as our high calling, when I was a, a student ministries pastor, one of the most frequent conversations that you would get into with high school students, particularly as they got into their junior and senior year, was how do you know God's plan for your life? How do you think they're facing college decisions, career decisions, they're wrestling with all that, and their sense was like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna miss out. How do I know I'm not missing my calling. And I think for a lot of us, as whether we're students or adults, we wrestle with variations of this idea. What is God's specific will for my life? Maybe some of you are in that place right now. But I think one of the things that I always try to encourage students with when we talk about this idea of our calling is that for the most part, our sense of God's call in our life while we oftentimes look at it and we're thinking about something very specific, very personal, this is what God wants me to do in this moment right now, where he wants me to go or who he wants me to marry or who, whatever it is, right? When, God, when scripture talks about God's call in our lives, it talks about it as a, a corporate calling that we all experience. Things that, that are true for all of us. And so what is scripture teaching us about our calling? So after addressing these specific situations where he's talking about uh, submission in, in, in the context of marriage, and he's talking about submission in the context of, of a bondservant to a master or under a government, now he sort of pulls back a little bit. And he's talking to all of us collectively as the church. Verse 8, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So, so Peter now connects the way that he's been teaching us on how to exemplify Jesus in an unjust world. And he says that should certainly be true here. That, that should certainly be demonstrated and modeled as we relate to one another. We talked about this last week from a context of the idea of mutual submission, meaning that what scripture teaches us in our relationships to one another is this idea of we're submitting, we're laying down our rights for the benefit of another, and we're living this out collectively, corporately together. That's the vision. 
But Peter now gives greater clarity. He's more specific to this call. He tells us that we are to be like-minded. The ESV translates that unity of mind. Sympathy. Love one another. Compassion. Humbleness. Right? Again, the ESV says, have a humble mind. This is a high calling. And it's hard. Let's be honest for a second. What Peter is laying out here is not it's not something that we just flip a switch and easily do together. The, reader, the reason that Peter addresses this so poignantly is because he understands that in order to model this together in community, it takes commitment and a deep surrender together to Jesus. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we all agree all the time. It doesn't mean that we don't have different perspectives. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. It means that we share the same calling. And that calling, in that calling, there is a standard by which we are to interact and treat each other. So notice the pattern here that that Peter addresses. Notice that on both ends of this list, he begins with our minds. He says uh, to be like-minded, have unity of mind. And then on the other end of that, have a humble mind. And then in the middle, there's these two emotional responses, sympathy and compassion. And it's all centered on love for one another. It It all emerges from there. It all emerges from this same calling, this shared calling that we have based on Christ to love each other and out of love for each other, we are sympathetic and compassionate. It transforms our emotions to each other. And out of that transformed place, we, have a, we are, uh, share a same mind, like-mindedness, and, and we're humble. I think, uh, imagine it this way. Imagine for a moment that you are uh, driving on a highway with a friend or a spouse or somebody and you get into an argument. Um, and maybe it even kind of intensifies a little bit. And as you're heading down the highway, all of a sudden you start to notice like ambulances pass you by or um, police officers. And suddenly you find yourself kind of at an accident scene. And maybe you see, look around and, and there's some nervous family members and, and there's first responders trying to rescue somebody. And, and what if you and your friend in that moment just continued in your argument, right? Just got back to your debate. That would, that would be entirely inappropriate, right? We, we would look at that and say, like, you're, you're totally oblivious to what is happening around you and your surroundings, right? Peter's point here is God is actively in the midst of, of a rescue mission. He's actively intervening in order to, to save and redeem. And so he says our conduct needs to be in view of that. We need to have that lens as we understand how we relate to one another and the call that God has given us. So this like-mindedness, this sympathy, this love for one another, this compassion and humility that this is supposed to be experienced in our relationships together— and Christian community is vital then for how we live out the gospel to a watching world. Specifically when we live where there may be opposition to this idea of a surrendered life to Christ. 
So Peter goes on. This is verse 9 now. He says this. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This, this has been the plan from the very beginning. If we trace this all the way back to God calling Abraham out of his homeland, right? To, be a, to live as a foreigner in exile. Same terminology that Peter uses here for, for our experience in, in this world. And he said he's called them out to leave their homeland to be a covenant people with God so that the world would experience his blessing. He says that all peoples on earth might be blessed through you. So through the line of Abraham would come a savior. And through Jesus, God would extend his covenant people. That it would be this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, every Uh, corner of the earth where people would be called to be a part of this covenant family of God. And in this covenant family of God would be the people, would be how the world receives a tangible experience of God's blessing. And what's amazing about this, this this high call that you and I get to, he says, it's in this, this work that God has given us to be a blessing to others that you and I actually experience his blessing. Right? It's cyclical, even when it's to the point of suffering. He's saying it's not easy, it's not comfortable, it, it, it's going to demand something of us, it's costly, but it's our calling, all of ours. This is what he's set us apart for, it's a part of the plan. So to help the church understand this, he, he cites this example of King David, a, a psalm of David's from Psalm 34 who despite the fact this is written in the context of, of David being hunted down by King Saul in order to, as Saul saw it, to eliminate a threat to his throne. And in the, even in the midst of that, even when given opportunity, David would not take an action against Saul because he would not compromise his character in order to accomplish a purpose, but rather he trusted God and he lived out his high call. You and I, as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, you and I are called to be a blessing even in our suffering. Which then Peter says, this is going to cause some people to ask some questions. And when they ask questions, you have a hopeful answer. A hopeful answer. This is the second thing that we see there. Back in verse 13 now, Peter writes this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience that that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I, um, I think many of you know I grew up in, in kind of rural section of Ohio. Um, small farm town just across the border from 
Richmond, Indiana. Both of my grandparents were grew up on farms and were involved in agriculture from to various degrees their entire lives. And my my both of my grandpas had what I like to call kind of like a, a heartland pragmatism. By that I mean that the, the primary question that people that grew up in that environment seem to be concerned with is does it work? Like, is it, is it effective? Does it mean to an end? So when, my, when computers became a thing, my grandma was always kind of like on the cutting edge. And so she always wanted to have a computer. She wanted to be able to communicate with her people. She had her Facebook page and, and uh, she wanted to be able to email. And, and so, as you know, like computers come with certain challenges and viruses and all this sorts of thing. And my grandpa always used to say to my grandma when the computer wasn't working well, my typewriters never had a virus, you know. <laughs> and, and, to, and like, he's 95-year-old, my grandpa's still alive. And if you get, if you were to, while well, he still had his eyesight and his ability, if you were going to get a piece of communication from him, it was going to be a handwritten letter or a typewritten letter on his typewriter. Because in his mind, he went down there, he turned it on, and it worked, Right? Peter here is he's being a bit pragmatic with us. He wants us to understand what works. The pragmatic nature of, of what he's teaching us. He even says from a sheer kind of base level, like who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? So as a general rule, church, the likelihood of suffering as a result of, of doing good, of living this righteous or holy life that he's been describing He's saying that that is certainly less likely than suffering if we are actively seeking to be subversive to, to people around us. At one level, Peter's just, he's just being practical with us. But he's also very honest. And he says, but it's not impossible. He says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are still blessed. Peter is echoing back now to the teaching of Jesus, where Jesus is describing life in the kingdom of God. He reframes the whole understanding of what it means to be blessed in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think most of us do not readily associate the idea of suffering with the experience of blessing. But of course, that's not, that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is that this being blessed is what informs the suffering. They're, they're, you are already blessed because of Christ. And so you understand the suffering through the lens of of the blessing that Christ, that you have because you've been found in Christ. There is a truth that supersedes, that overrides the unjust suffering. And that is the blessing of being in Christ. This points us to a, a greater or an ultimate vindication. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So Peter tells us to do two things here. He says, first, revere Christ as Lord. Revere Christ as Lord, difficulty, pain, genuine suffering. These things have a way, if you're anything like me, to seek to reorient my heart 
to, to some alternative hope, some alternative idea that I think is going to alleviate the pain or reduce the suffering. Peter, in this moment, says, but, but honor Christ as Lord. And again, let's remember contextually here. Most theologians, biblical scholars, think that, that Peter is writing this when he knows that that his time here on earth is drawing short. Some people think that this, writ, this letter is written after Paul has already been executed and, and just before Peter's execution. So it's this sense of he knows what comes to This isn't theoretical for Peter. Peter's not saying this in some sort of like he's writing in his office and everything is well. He's understanding not only his own experience of suffering, but he knows that the church because they are followers of Jesus and because they have believed this message is experiencing this in very real ways. And in the midst of that, he's like, know where your final authority rests. Know who has the last word. He's saying, set apart Christ as Lord. Reestablish where your ultimate authority resides. Despite the push and the pull that, that a culture, any culture would seek to to have us, to shape us into the pattern of this world, to that Peter says, revere Christ as Lord. In your heart, set him apart. And then he says, have a gentle and respectful answer. Be ready, Peter writes, with an answer for that hope. And here's the assumption that Peter's making is that living hope in the midst of suffering is going to cause people to ask some questions. Living hope, and I know some of you have experienced this in very real ways. Genuine hope in the midst of loss and pain and grief is going to cause some people to ask some questions. And Peter says, when those questions come, be ready with an answer as to why you have hope. Be ready to point them to a greater authority. When you're asked, Peter, and, and Peter anticipates that you will be, have an answer for the hope that you have that's informed and backed by the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter says, be ready. Be prepared. Again, I think, I think one of the things that we need to wrestle with as I read this passage is, is does my life in the good and the bad evoke a sense of curiosity in people? Does it, does it cause them to say, you know what, there's something about the way that that guy lives that, that makes me want to ask some questions? Because I think if, if we understand Peter correctly, it should. And when they do, we need to be ready and be prepared. Notice how he, he, he qualifies this with a gentle and, and respectful answer. I think that's a little bit of a lost ours in our culture. We live in like this YouTube version of the world. And I don't know if you guys see this or if this is just like this algorithm. That, but like you see people clip out whether it's like politicians or pundits or preachers. And, and they say, so-and-so slays so-and-so with their answer. Or so-and-so owns so-and-so. Or so-and-so just, and you're like, I'm not sure that that's the, the model. I have never won somebody over to the idea that Jesus loves them and, and wants to be in a relationship with them by dominating them in a debate, right? I don't, maybe you have, but that has never been my experience, 
right? Again, as, as he articulates this for us, right, he's saying in your answer, you should model Christ, who is gentle, who loves us. They should see Christ in you as you begin to explain why you've come to this position. And all of this then, it, it lands in this, this depiction of the vindicated king. The vindicated king, back in, in um, 1 Peter, picking it up in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God awaited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It was only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Now, real quickly, I want to just say, I want to say a couple things. Um, this, is, this, this section of scripture is, is loaded with a lot of imagery and difficulty. And there's even where it says, talks about baptism saves you, right what in those days in peter's days if you made a proclamation of faith in jesus and said hey i'm i'm placing my faith in him for salvation it was like awesome let's go to the river let's get you baptized right let's they were they were simultaneous things so peter's not actually teaching us that the act of of baptism is salvific he's those things were kind of one in the same in in that era we biblical scholars have debated and talked about and argued and thought through this passage for centuries and many of them have come up with the answer of i don't know especially when it talks about jesus going and making proclamation to imprisoned spirits in fact martha martin luther the the reformer i just found this funny basically but he says this, he says, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. And he says, I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So let's approach this with some degree of humility here as we come in. But I think, I think what's interesting for me is my tendency when I read a passage like this is to to get so sort of immersed into kind of all the unknown and, and the unanswered. And, and in doing so, sometimes miss the fundamental point that the author is making, which I think is the danger here. And, and Peter's fundamental point is that our lives, even if, if it brings us to a point of suffering and, and death, unjustly so, He's saying they will be judged and vindicated by a king who has already been victorious and has been vindicated, right? So there's this pattern that he establishes in here. He reminds us that there is a final word, and he cites the example of Christ in this. He says, who has been put to death in the body, who's been made alive in the spirit. Okay, again, this is language we understand when we talk about salvation, 
and who's gone into heaven now where all authorities and powers are in submission to him. Like Peter's, Peter's reminding us that, that this life, what happens to us here, is not the final word. Peter's encouragement to the group of Christians in the midst of genuine persecution, genuine suffering, even to the point of death, is that Jesus' resurrection validated his claim to be God. It vindicated him against the accusations of unjust rulers and authorities, and he reigns as the victorious king. And he is the one who vindicates us. It's, it's the message of of the gospel and the freedom that we experience in us. And so as I close this morning, I want to just real quickly go back to a passage that we read a section of last week. This is from, this is from 1 Peter chapter 2. We were talking about this in terms of modeling Christ as we lay down our rights. But again, Peter is echoing this, and I want us to, I want us to hear this. I want us to hear the end result, the final word. It says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a final word and that's it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for for Peter's soaring vision of what it means to live a life that is in total surrender to you, even when there is suffering. In fact, Lord, we discover that it's in the midst of faithfulness to you in difficulty and pain that people will grow curious about the hope that we have. Lord, would you prepare us to answer that with gentleness and respect. And Lord, continue to live out um, in us this vision that you give us of unity that's born out of brotherly love. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.